to Psalm chapter 27. Father, thank you, Lord, for another beautiful psalm. We love your word. We love you. Lord, help us grow in sanctification as your psalm taught us so much of last week, growing in holiness and growing in sanctification, separating us from the world, Lord. And we pray that through this psalm that you would grow us more in sanctification, more specifically by building up our trust and our confidence in you, that we would trust in God more, that we would trust in the Father more, and trust in Christ more too, through, according to your word, your scriptures, and the gospel. And we ask, we beg for these things in the name of Jesus, who is our Christ. Amen. The theme of this psalm is David's devotion to the Lord, and as I said in my prayer, his trust and confidence in the Lord. And it is so crucially important, dear church, that we pray that God would enable us to apply and demonstrate this in our lives. Again, like last week's sermon, as in any other sermon, especially through this series, through most of the Psalms, that an explanation and an application is we apply the text to our word, our life, so that we may demonstrate it and walk in those steps according to the word by faith. So the outline is verses 1 through 3, David sounds forth his sure confidence in God. Then in verses 4 through 6 is his love of communion with God. Verses 7 through 12 is he then commits to prayer. Verses 13 through 14, he acknowledges his own faith and exhorts others to follow his example. Let us first read the first three verses. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, come upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident." Verse 1, again, David said, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? His confidence is in the Lord, not in himself. His abilities and gifts are from the Lord. He didn't acquire them on his own. The Lord is his light and his salvation. The Lord as light can pertain to salvation, but it also means that God is his illumination and his instruction. And our illumination and our instruction specifically according to the scriptures. And that God, his light, is our confidence. And that our confidence can be in him. Jesus is our light in a salvific sense, and he is our light also to guide us. Via his word. It says in Isaiah 9-2, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Past tense, they walked in darkness, darkness, but now, present tense, they have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. John 1-4 says, In him was life, and the light was the life was the light of men. John 8.12 says, 
Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness and have the light of life. That Jesus is the lamp unto our salvation and the light unto a dark and dying world. First John 1 John 1.5 This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. No darkness can be in God. Only in us sinners can we have darkness. But when we walk in his light, according to his word and according to his will, he overcomes and consumes the darkness that we are presently in. In verse 1b he said, The Lord is the strength of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? God is David's strength and refuge, as well as ours. And with God is our strength and refuge, whom or what shall we fear as a church or as individual Christians? The answer is, we need not fear anyone nor anything. We need not fear the uncertainty of the state of our nation. We need not fear our adversaries, such as China, Iran, or Russia. We need not fear losing our constitutional rights, as some suppose. Though we benefit from the First Amendment and the Constitution, if we did lose them, if we did in our lifetime, we still will be work function well as a church. The only ones that will have a difficulty with the First Amendment are probably, to be honest with you, people in the streets that are preaching and sharing the gospel in the public place. But this church will still operate the same. We could go underground in the future, but we will still operate because the Bible says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We will need not fear our death, according to the word of God. We need not fear any of these if we have trust in God and confidence in Christ. Again, the theme of this song is trust and confidence. And we can have this by faith according to his scripture. When I used to serve under the umbrella of the prolific Christian coalition, which really was a politically concentrated organization, our motto was, we need to lead like Moses, fight like David, and run like Lincoln. Though nobody here is running for office, politically speaking, we still need to lead like Moses and fight like David as a corporate local church and as individual Christians. And the best way for our church to do that, dear church, is to put our hands on the plow and to go out into the lost and dying world and to share or preach and teach his glorious gospel. That is our great commission from our commanding officer. Verse 2, he said, When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, come upon me to eat my flesh, they stumbled and fell. God trips them up. He made them stumble and fall. David says when his enemies come against him, his enemies stumble and fell. But God helps David by causing them to stumble and fall. Similarly to Jesus, it says in John 18, 5 through 6, it says, Jesus said to them, I am he. But Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. If we were fortunate to be able to see Jesus in person or God personally, which we won't on this side of, we're not going to see them in this kingdom, but in the future we'll be with the Lord. 
but I too would most likely fall on my face. I would probably fall on conscience because of the awe of God, because of his awesomeness. I would probably fall and pass out because of my sin in the presence of a glorious, sovereign God. Even the threat of actual war, David did not flinch in the face of adversity. Verse 3, it says, Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, it in this will I be confident. Again, confidence. Talking about our confidence. That our confidence is in God and in Christ. Because this heart here, mentioning the heart in this verse, verse 3, is strengthened by keeping David's confidence in the Lord. It's whom our confidence is in is what matters. Confidence matters. Maybe that's a new hashtag. Hashtag, confidence matters. If it's in the Lord, it matters. If it's in the Lord, confidence means much and is very effective in our lives. And his perspective, his confidence is in the Lord, and his perspective was upon the Lord. And we too, as a church, our confidence must be in the Lord, and our perspective must be all consumed on the Lord. David was not all consumed with the affairs of the world, although a church should be concerned with the affairs of the world, but he was not consumed with the affairs of the world. He was consumed with God. Because the Bible says that God is an all-consuming fire. If our hearts are truly sanctified, and if our confidence is truly in God, then we too could be more like David. We can lead like Moses and fight like David. This phrase, my heart, points to the source of personal fortitude. That our moral fortitude comes from God. David's confidence was in the Lord again. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, I think we shared this passage probably a few months ago, but we can never share it too many times. Perhaps maybe once a month might be enough. But it says, what shall then we say to these things? If God is with us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. God didn't even spare his own son, but delivered us all. How shall he not be with him who freely gives us all things? Who shall bring us charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, because Christ is at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? The answer is absolutely nobody. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Even when the church was slaughtered all day long, they were still saying, who can come against us? For your sake we are killed all day long, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Last week, we talked a lot about the H word, 
It was in the scriptures, the word hate. But this love that God has for his church, this love that Christ has for God's elect is absolutely profound. Who could even understand the love of God? I couldn't. I can't understand why a man in the modern era can write a book about the love of God. I guarantee nobody can write a book properly to accurately depict the true love of God beyond the scriptures. I really don't. I believe every man that did would fall short, that they would sin. God's word is sinless. But when man writes about God's love, they're going to fall miserably short. They're going to sin as an author. I could never write a book about heaven. First of all, God doesn't want us to know everything about what heaven looks like. And I would fall miserably short of the grandeur and glory of God in heaven of how beautiful it actually would be for us, that he is saved for us. Next is verses 4 through 6. In his, his love of communion with God. Verse 4. One thing have I desired of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. For in the same time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me upon a rock, and now shall mine head be lifted up. My head shall be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. Therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy, I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord. Though I've never heard anybody say this before, I've heard it of many other, many epithets or quotes, but uh, this next verse, or this first verse, verse 4, uh, would actually be an excellent inscription on a gravestone or a tombstone. And I'll say it again, just verse 4 only. One thing, imagine this being on your headstone. One thing I have desired of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire of his temple. That should be our biography, our goal in life, our desire to seek after him, to dwell in the house of the Lord, not only in this sanctuary, which is a house of the Lord, but the true house of the Lord in heaven, where we will be with him forever in for the rest of eternity, to behold the beauty of God and to inquire in his temple. Imagine that for an eternity. Our external trials or difficulties are small in comparison to our our eternal presence of God. The more we trust in the Lord, church, the more our fear is banished. The more we truly long for God and his eternality, the fewer and farther our vertical problems will bother us. Notice how I didn't say the fewer and farther our problems will be? No, there's still going to be problems, but the fewer and farther that our problems will actually negatively affect us or bother us. Like the old water rolling off a duck's back. That's how we can be as we're enduring troubles. As Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, Oh, listen to this. But seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all things shall be added to you. Who do we seek first? The kingdom of God. We seek first God and Christ and his kingdom over any other kingdom. What if you believe in a one-kingdom theology or a two-kingdom theology? We must seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all of these things will be added to you.
Amen? And we trust and enjoy God's presence. As we trust and enjoy God's presence, the more he assures us with his goodness and his love. Psalms 23, we did an exposition of this several, about two months ago. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you art with me. I like the King James better, but I think I put this in New King James here. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. The cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen and amen. David's desire was to dwell in the temple of God for the rest of his life, and so should should we. As the scripture says, our citizenship is in where? In heaven. Verse 5. From the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me upon a rock. Oh, there's a, there's a lot in this verse. Check this out. First of all, in verse 5a, David said, When trouble comes to him, the Lord, he shall hide him. He shall hide him, in the Hebrew, means to hide, to protect, to treasure, and to store up. He hides him in the dwelling of the tabernacle of God. Then verse 5b says, God's t- in, in God's tabernacle, shall he hide me? It went from he shall hide now to shall he hide me? And this shall he hide me, Sathar, means to hide by covering up, to keep secret, to keep closed. Then after the Lord secretly hides him, it says in verse 5, see, he shall set me up upon a rock. It went from he shall hide me to shall he hide me, now to he shall set me up upon a rock. This, he shall set me up in the Hebrew, rum, means to rise up or raise up, to be high actively, to exalt and or to promote. So the Lord not only conceals David, but he hides him secretly, and then he promotes or raises him up even higher. You can call this a clandestine relocation, which I've actually been involved in in, in my previous career. Hiding somebody, concealing them, so nobody can know where they are. And God did this for David, to protect him from his enemies. But know this, David had to go through some difficult times to come to this place of exaltation, to come to this place of promotion, if you will. And so God sets David on the rock, a place of high ground and tactical advantage. Psalm 18, 1 through 2 says, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength in whom I will trust. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. We also did a sermon on that, Psalm 18. It's kind of neat as we're going through Psalms, seeing uh, ones we've already discussed that are just such, so applicable as cross-references as we move forward through the book of Psalm. James 1, 1 through 8 says this. I find this so encouraging. My brethren, my church, Mountain Reformed Baptist Church, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. 
But let patience have its perfect work, that you may perfect, be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you out there lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him who asks in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I'd be an outright liar to say that I don't become unstable in my ways. I'd be a liar to say that I don't ever become double-minded. It happens when we're what? When we're not trusting in the Lord. When our confidence is not in Christ. We too will become unstable in our ways. We too can become double-minded. That's why we must be saturated with the Word of God. That's why we must be inoculated with discipleship and fellowship at a local church level. Romans 5, 1 through 5 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through also we have access by faith. Through Jesus Christ, church, you have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Church, do you understand that you have access into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God? We have access to this faith, and we can rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We put our trust in God, our confidence in Christ, And know that the Holy Spirit has been given to us. We participate in the benefits of the triunity of the Godhead as Christians. So in verse 5, the Lord just concealed, protected, and exalted David. And now is David's response. Verse 6. And now shall mine head be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. Now, because of what God had did for him, therefore I will also, therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord. David has much reason to rejoice and to give praise and thanks to the Lord. And church know this, rejoicing casts out fear. When we rejoice, it casts out fear. I used to say that the armor of God, Ephesians 10, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, is our no-fear gear. And it is. Put on the no-fear gear. Put on the whole armor of God. But if you really want to cast out fear, rejoice in all of these things. Because rejoicing, joy, J-O-Y, our joy can be in the Lord, and it casts out fear. An evidence of salvation or a, you know, I, I was talking to somebody, um, I guess this is good gossip, we can say this. I was talking to somebody in this church yesterday about a lady who used to go to this church. It was Nancy. Nancy was always rejoicing. She was. She was always full of joy. I miss that about her, her funniness. She always rejoiced. Didn't matter. She always rejoiced. 
Something that we were just talking on the phone, pulling out things that we recognize from people that have come and gone over the years, and talking about the good things about them, not even thinking of the bad things about them, because I have bad things about me that we can talk about, but talking about the good things about the people that go to this church, as well as the people that have left us. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Rejoice always, praying without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. There are so many Christians that say, I don't know what God's will is for my life. I don't know what the will of God is. And there are so many passages that say, quote, this is the will of God. So many. We should do a topical study just on that. But this is the will of God, that we rejoice always. And not just rejoice, but pray without ceasing. And not just rejoice and pray without ceasing, but giving thanks in all circumstances. What circumstances? All. A-L-L. All circumstances. The good, the bad, the ugly, the negative, the positive, the scary, the funny. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. God's will for Christians to consistently rejoice and always give thanks in both good and bad circumstances. That means I will rejoice and give thanks for the coronavirus. I don't want to catch the coronavirus. I'm not a fool, but I'm not afraid of it. And I will rejoice and give thanks for the coronavirus. And church, if and when I get it, if I die, I guarantee this man will be rejoicing for the coronavirus. Think about that. How many people do you know will say that? If they're saved and if they died for the coronavirus, will they truly be thankful? I couldn't think of anything to be more thankful for than being on the other side, being in the glory of God, being in glory, to be absent for the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Paul said in Philippians 2, So in other words, a Christian's optimism is not the same as the world's optimism. They are a world apart from each other. The world says, my glass is half full. That's their optimism. Our optimism says, hey, when it's empty, I'll rejoice. When the doctor gives me one last... You know, I think about these people. uh, Some of us are trying to get this prescription medicine... What's it called? The hydroxychloride? I forget. Yeah, I've, I've applied for it. I'm trying to get it. I'd like to have it. I'd like to have that that uh, cocktail, if you will, on hand. But they haven't. It's been since Thursday night. I haven't heard from them. I'd like to have it on hand. I'm trusting in the Lord, but He's provided us some medicines that can help us, especially people with me with very bad immune systems. Uh, I'm I'm optimistic, but I'm not stupid. But when the world says, I'm only optimistic that my glass is half full, but but a Christian will be able to say, I'm optimistic when the glass is half empty. And I was thinking about somebody who I know through his wife, whom I went to high school with recently. And Lori's husband, Bob, was a pastor at a very large church here in the Inland Empire. and He died two weeks ago. And the way she described it on her Facebook page, Lori who I've known since the 70s, that once they inserted that tube into his throat, they knew he wasn't coming back. 
Once he was put on life support, basically, is what that was, they were convinced he wasn't coming back. And he didn't. And she has much optimism, much trust in God, much confidence in Christ. When you watch a Christian social media posts, see her husband get sick, see her get sick with the same virus, see one of their many kids catch the virus, and watch her chronological order of events as she logs them to give glory to God, to trust in God, to have her confidence in Christ, and photographs of loved ones standing outside the hospital. I'm way off my notes here. That's probably going to get me in trouble. Hopefully I won't say something stupid because I am just a knucklehead. But they put a big heart and taped it on the window, way up high, this tall Kaiser Permanente Hospital, so that they would know which room Bob was in as they inserted the breathing tube down his throat. And seeing how they were responding in the parking lot, putting their faith in God and their trust in Christ, praising him, but also saying that he's probably not going to be back. He's going to be gone. And Bob was gone. He died. He never came back. In church, that's a good testimony. I know this doesn't sound very scholarly, but some people, when they come under trials, they get their panties all in a bunch. They freak out. But watching this family give testimony to watching her husband, their father, their pastor, their friends go through that transition and then never come back and see how they responded to that trial. And Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, Do all things without grumbling or questioning. I, I sometimes grumble, but I think it's okay as long as you offer a solution to the problem. If we're going to be salt, and earth, salt of the earth and light of the world, we're going to have complaints. Because we don't like the world. The world's screwed up, isn't it, church? But as long as we're offering a solution to the problem, complaints are good. If we're going to do something about it. But nobody wants to be around a constant complainer or a grumbler mumbler. And Paul said this, Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain, or labor in vain. Our God is a covenantal God. He's not a dispensational God. He's covenantal. And he specially and specifically cares for his own people. We belong to God's covenant. His promise. And he displays his love and his grace and his mercies to the people of his covenant. To his own people. And because God loves his church so much. His bride. His elect. We can rejoice in all of these things all of the time. Although David experienced 
so much grace and so many mercies from the Lord, he still continues in prayer and perhaps even intensifies his prayer. Next is verses 7 through 12. He then commits to prayer. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercies also upon me and answer me. When thou saidest, Seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. Hide not the face far from me. Put not thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Leave me not, neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. Verse 10. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path. Because of mine enemies, deliver me not over unto the will of mine enemies, for false witnesses are risen against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. The most effective and preliminary process of getting right with God is in prayer and through prayer. In prayer and through prayer. Prayers of confession. This is what we do on Thursday nights. Prayers of confession. Prayers for help and deliverance. Prayers in regards to assistance in repentance. Prayers of intercession. Prayers of supplication and thanksgiving. For the, and prayers of intercession for the, for the saints. And prayers of giving of thanksgiving. We must labor in prayer and do so often. And not just on Thursday nights. The other six days of the week, all day long, we must keep praying. Praying without ceasing does not mean you you pray 60 seconds a minute, 60 minutes an hour, but it means that you pray frequently throughout that day, that you're always praying, always talking to God, always in communication with God. As Paul said in Ephesians 6, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, soldiers, ambassadors for Christ, we must be watchful to the things of this end. These are things we talked about Thursday night, didn't we? We talked about a lot of things, didn't we? It was okay. Everybody got along. We talked much about politics, but we got along. We all were having fun with each other. Being watchful of these things all the way to the end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Next is verses 13 through 14. David acknowledges his own faith. There are Psalms where he's dedicated to acknowledging his sin. Now he acknowledges his own faith and exhorts others to follow his example. I had fainted, verse 13, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. In verse 13, David said, I had fainted. Some of your translations will have that in there, and if it's, and it should be italicized if it's in there. And the reason why it's italicized if it's in your translation is because it was never in the original manuscripts. Mine in King James says, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the giving. Again, my King James says, I had fainted unless I had believed. The new King James says, I would have lost heart lest I believed. The NASB says, I certainly believed that. 
The ESV says, I believe that. I have two of you right there, NASV, ESV. I, I know many of your translations. And again, since the, uh, the, the words uh, that are italicized in some of these translations, they're not in the original manuscript, so the, the better, more accurate translation is NASB or ESV. I certainly believe that, or I believed that, to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. David's last verse is solid advice for all of us. Solid advice for all of us. Verse 14. Verse 14 says, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. David's confidence was in the Lord, not in himself. His confidence was in the Lord, not in man, nor in circumstances, nor was it in results. Over the many years, I've had many people, because of the type of evangelism that I've done, many people have actually attributed that to my law enforcement career. One guy even says, well, it must have been the police academy. Well, if I agreed with him, or if I believed that, that would be idolatry. Because everything that I have that I have acquired that is good, or that might be a gift, or that might be boldness, or that might be confidence in him, is not of myself. has nothing to do with my career. But it has everything to do with God, that they came to me from him. So in other words, this is laughable, but if I had been a male librarian, I would be the same today. I'm not saying that our professional careers don't affect our lives. They do. Law enforcement made me cynical in some areas. But my boldness in God and confidence in Christ is from him. And my gifts are from him. If I were a... Airline stewardess, which now they call a flight attendant. By the way, I still call them a stewardess. Even if they're a guy, I thank you, stewardess. <laughs> I'm not going to change the names. They still call female, a male nurse a nurse, don't they? They'll change that 10 years from now. The male nurses will be called something different. But if I were a librarian or a nurse or a school teacher, or no matter what gift, I, uh, what career I chose to take, I would still be the same today. That our boldness is from God and in God, and our confidence is from God and in Christ. I'd rather think like David and the man of the scriptures than like any modern day or postmodern man. Because we have to refrain from carnal humanist or humanistic thinking. We have to think like bond slaves of Christ, ambassadors of Christ. That we look up to him. Paul said in the text that Brother Robin read as he led worship today. Paul opened up that chapter by saying, be an imitator of me. Why? So that we may imitate Christ. So that we may be imitate God. Those that have preceded us in death. Those are the ones that I want to be an imitator of. Specifically of Christ. Of God. Be an imitator of God. Be an imitator of Christ. Be an imitator of men like Paul that said, Be an imitator of me so that you may be more like Christ. Because the men or the women that have preceded us up in death, that lived well and died well, that did not become heretics, that did not become apostates, that did not become compromisers, 
that did not become an adulterer, that did not become a false prophet, all the things that modern and postmodern men and women can be guilty of, that's why my mentors at large are old, dead men. And we've got to think that way, lest we be humanists in our way of thinking. And so when anything good comes out of fellow man or our Christian brethren or me or you, I must know that that is the Lord working in you. That is the Lord our God. And you are a Christ reflector. You are a mere image bearer of God in Christ. That's who you are. That's why you're the person you are. The good parts of you. The goodness parts of you. The part of you that's a saint. The part of you that's an ambassador of Christ. The part of you that's a child of God. The part of you that is a bond slave to Christ. That is because of the goodness of God and the righteousness of Christ in you. And each and every gift of his Holy Spirit that he manifests throughout you. It's all about him. It's all about him. So let us have a higher view of God rather than our fellow man. Let us have our confidence in him. Father, thank you for your word. Help us have more trust in you. Lord, as your word says, to believe in Jesus is to be entrusted to Jesus in the Greek. That we would be entrusted to him, not just believe, but to be entrusted to Jesus as the Christ. That is a portrait of salvation. And Lord, though once we can only be saved once, we pray for more sanctification. We pray for growth and holiness. We pray that you would build our trust in you, God, and build our confidence in Christ. We pray that we would give you thanks always. Lord, though we do have modern-day men and women and postmodern men and women that have been very effective in our lives, that have discipled us and that have helped us, and we do give you all the praise, the thanks and honor and glory and recognition for those people But, Lord, we we particularly thank you of the men seen in the scriptures here that you have decreed for us to be trained under, to be taught under. And so we thank you for that. In Jesus' holy name, amen.